0: Hello. My name is Marshall Rosenberg. I'm grateful for your attention, and I'm going to be sharing with you a process that we call nonviolent communication. I'll be sharing its purpose with you and how it's being used by people throughout the world at a number of different levels. I'll show you how it's being used within ourselves, how it's used to create the quality of connections with others at home, at work, that we would like to have, and I'll be showing you how it's applied in social change work. I started looking about new forms of communication because of a couple questions that have been in my mind since childhood. My family moved to Detroit, Michigan, just in time for the race riots of 1943. In our neighborhood, 30 people were killed in about four days. We had to stay in the house for those four days, couldn't go out. And this was a very powerful education to me as a boy. Painful education, but one that brought to my mind and my awareness that this is a world where people might want to hurt you because of your skin color. And then when I went to school for the first time, I found out that my last name could be a stimulus for people wanting to do violence to me. So it was on my mind repeatedly as a child, as growing up, what is it that gets into people that makes them want to harm people for reasons such as their name, their religion, their backgrounds, their skin color? Unfortunately, I was also exposed to the other side of human beings. For example, my grandmother was totally paralyzed, and my mother was caring for her. And each evening, an uncle of mine would come to our house to help my mother care for my grandmother. And the whole time he was cleaning her up and feeding her, he had the most beautiful smile on his face. So as a boy, I kept wondering, how come there are people like my uncle, who seem to enjoy contributing to the well-being of other people, and then how come this other aspect of human beings, that they want to do violence to one another? So those questions were on my mind as I was growing up, and when it came time to make some decision about what kind of work I wanted to do, I thought I'd like to study and find out more about human beings. and. What makes some human beings enjoy contributing to the well-being of others? And what makes some human beings want to do violence to others? I chose clinical psychology to find out what I could about those two questions and got a doctor's degree in psychology. But there were some limits to what I was taught it didn't answer the questions as well as I would like. But I was more interested in learning how we were meant to live and what gets people off of that. So I studied on my own after graduate school to try to find out what I could about why people like my uncle enjoy contributing to the well-being of others and why others seem to enjoy making others suffer. And I came to what I'll be sharing with you from a number of different sources. The main one was to study the people that I really admired to see what made them different. Why did they enjoy contributing to people's well-being, even when they were involved in or in the middle of very conflicting situations where people around them were behaving in a destructive way? Talked to people like that, looked at them, learned what I could from them about what they had learned that helped them to stay with what I really think is our nature which is contributing to one another's well-being. And I studied comparative religions to see if I could learn some things from the basic religions. Did they seem to have some agreement about how we were meant to live? And some research was very helpful to me, research of Carl Rogers studying characteristics of a healing relationship. From all of these sources, I put together a process that was based on my desire of how I would like human beings to behave. And I'd like to clarify the purpose of the process that I was looking for. And then it will make the mechanics of the process come more alive. Because nonviolent communication is really an integration of a spirituality with concrete tools for manifesting this spirituality in our daily lives, our relationships and in our political activities. So I'd like to begin by clarifying the spiritual consciousness that I was trying to serve by looking for the skills which I'll be talking to you about. And I'd like to start with a song that I think makes the purpose of the process come to light. This song is called Given To, written by Colleague of mine at one time named Ruth Bebermeyer. I never feel more given to than when you take from me. When you understand the joy I feel giving to you. And you know my giving isn't done to put you in my debt but because I want to live the love I feel for you. To receive with grace may be the greatest giving. There's no way I can separate the two. You give to me, I give you my receiving. And when you take from me, I feel so given to. So the purpose of nonviolent communication is to connect with other people in a way that enables giving to take place, compassionate giving, giving that comes from the heart willingly, where we are giving service to ourselves and others, not out of duty, obligation, not out of fear of punishment, hope for a reward, not out of guilt or shame, but for what I consider is our nature, our nature to enjoy giving to one another. That's the purpose of nonviolent communication to help us connect with one another in a way that our nature is allowed to come forward in how we serve one another. With some people that I describe that to, and I say that I think it's our nature to enjoy giving. They wonder, I'm sure, whether I'm a little bit naive and I'm aware of all the violence in the world. How can you think that it's our nature to enjoy compassionate giving with what's happening in the world? I see the violence. I work in places like Rwanda, Israel, Palestine, Sri Lanka, so I'm well aware of all the violence in the world. But I don't think that's our nature. In every place that I work, I ask people the following. I say, think of something you've done within the last 24 hours that in some way has contributed to making life more wonderful for somebody. And when I ask them to do that, I then say, now, how do you feel when you are aware of how that act contributed to making life more wonderful for somebody? And everybody's smile on their face, you see. When we are aware of the power we have to enrich life, how good it feels to serve life. It feels good. And then I ask people, can anybody think of anything that's more fulfilling in life than to use our efforts this way? And I've asked that question all over our planet, and everyone seems in agreement. There's nothing that is better, nothing that feels better, nothing more enjoyable than using our efforts in the service of life, contributing to one another's well-being. Well, if that is so, then how come the violence? Well, I believe that the violence comes because of how we were educated, not because of our nature. I think we have been educated, according to the theologian Walter Wink, for about 8,000 years in a way that makes violence enjoyable, that gets us disconnected from our compassionate nature. And why were we educated this way, that's a long story and I won't go into it, except to say that it started with some myths that started to develop a long time ago about human nature, that humans were basically evil, selfish, and that the good life is uh, heroic forces crushing evil forces. So we've been living under this destructive mythology for a long time, and that destructive mythology requires a certain language. It requires a language that dehumanizes people, turns them into objects. So we have learned to think in terms of moralistic judgments of one another. So we have words in our consciousness, like right, wrong, good, bad, selfish, unselfish, terrorists, freedom fighters. And connected to these words is the a concept of justice based on deserve, that if you are one of these bad things, you deserve to be punished. If you do the good things, then you deserve to be rewarded. So unfortunately, for about 8,000 years, we have been subjected to that consciousness, and I think that that's the core of violence on our planet, this faulty education. So, the process I'll be sharing with you, nonviolent communication, is an integration of thought, language, and communication that I think brings us closer to our nature, that helps us to connect with one another, so that we come back to what is really the fun way to live, which is contributing to one another's well being. And I'll be showing you how to apply this process within ourselves. I'll show you how it applies in our relationships with others and in social change efforts. And I'll be making this interactive, so I'll be asking you to do some things as we go along so that you can be applying it as I talk about it. So, for example, let's begin by having you think of a situation that's current in your life where somebody's behaving in a way that isn't making life wonderful for you. And this could range all the way from a minor irritation that they created, or it could be something major that's bothering you about how this person behaves. But let's pick a real situation. And I'll show you how nonviolent communication can support us in creating a connection in that situation that will end with everybody's needs getting met and people will act toward one another solely for the purpose of enriching life for one another. Now, if you've got the person in mind, we'll see how nonviolent communication serves us. Wherever I go in the world, it seems like one of the people in the groups that I'll be working with, they'll probably have a two- or three-year-old that they want to work on. And what is the behavior that this two or three-year-old does that drives them nuts. They tell me that their two or three-year-old says horrible things like, no, when they want them to do something. Please put your toys back in the toy box. No. Some people tell me they live with partners who say horrible things like, that hurts me when you do that. And some of the people I work with have much more serious issues. They want to see how nonviolent communication can apply. So the work I do in countries like Rwanda, the people want to know how do I deal with my next-door neighbor that I know killed a member of my family. So whatever it is at the moment that's on your mind, think of somebody who's behaving in a way you don't like. And we'll see how nonviolent communication applies to that. I'd like you to write down or make a mental note of one specific thing that this person does. It could be something they do, could be something they don't do, could be something they say or don't say. Okay, now that you have down something that this person does that you don't like, let me give you an overview of what nonviolent communication will be like when we communicate with this person. Nonviolent communication keeps our attention focused on two critical questions. Question number one, what's alive in us? What's alive in me? What's alive in you? Now, this is a question that all over the planet people ask themselves when they get together. They don't use those words, what's alive in you? In English, they say it this way. How are you? Como esta usted? Como tale vu? Rwanda, they say, amakuru. So, but however they say it, it's a very important question. Now, we say it as a social ritual, but it's a very important question because if we're to live in peace and harmony, if we're to enjoy contributing to each other's well-being, we need to know what's alive in each other. So sadly, though most people uh, ask the question, very few people really know how to answer it very well because we haven't been educated in a language of life. So we've not been taught really to answer the question, how are you? We ask it, yes, but we don't know how to answer it. So nonviolent communication, as we'll see, suggests how we can let people know what's alive in us. It shows us how to connect with what's alive in other people. Even if they don't have words for saying it. So that's one question that nonviolent communication focuses our attention on. The second question, and it's related to this, is what can we do to make life more wonderful? What can you do to make life more wonderful for me? What can I do to make life more wonderful for you? So these two questions are the basis of nonviolent communication. What's alive in us? What can we do to make life more wonderful? Now just about everybody that studies nonviolent communication says two things about it. First they say how easy it is. I mean, how simple. Look, just these two questions. That's all we have to do is keep our communication, our focus of attention, our consciousness on what's alive in us. What would make life more wonderful? How simple? The second thing they say about it is how difficult it is. Now, how can something be so simple and so difficult at the same time? Well, I've already given you a hint about that. It's difficult because we've been programmed for 8,000 years to think and communicate in a quite different way. We haven't been taught to think about what's alive in us, So if we have been educated to fit under structures in which a few people dominate many, we have been taught more to think of what people think of us, especially the authorities, because if they judge us as bad, wrong, incompetent, stupid, lazy, selfish, we're going to get punished. And if they label us as good little boys and girls, good employees and bad employees, then we could be punished, rewarded. So we haven't been educated to think in terms of what's alive in us and what would make life more wonderful. So let's go back to the situation I ask you to think about, where somebody's behaving in a way you don't like. And let's begin by seeing how nonviolent communication would suggest that we let that person know what's alive in us in relationship to what they're doing. We want to be honest in nonviolent communication, but we want to be honest without using any words that imply wrongness, criticism, insults, psychological diagnoses. So, to say what's alive in us requires literacy of three kinds. First of all, it requires being able to answer the question I ask you without mixing in any evaluation. See, I ask you to think of one specific thing the person did that you don't like. That's what I will be calling an observation. What do people do that we either like or don't like? That's important information to communicate, to tell people what's alive in us. We need to tell the other person what they're doing that is supporting life in us, what they're doing that isn't supporting life in us. But it's very important to learn how to say that to people without mixing in any evaluation. For example, I was working recently with a person who was concerned about something her teenage daughter didn't do. So I said, what was it that your teenage daughter didn't do? And she says, she's lazy. Now can you hear a difference between the question I asked and the answer she gave? I asked, what does the daughter do? And she told me what she thought the daughter was. And I pointed this out to this person, that labeling people, diagnosing them as lazy leads to self-fulfilling prophecies. Any words we use that imply wrongness of others are tragic, suicidal expressions of what's alive in us. Tragic and suicidal because it doesn't lead to people enjoying contributing to our well-being. It provokes defensiveness and counter-aggression. Now, when I first learned this lesson, it was very frightening to me because I saw how much my head was filled with moralistic judgments. I'd been taught to think of moralistic judgments from the time I was being educated. And the reason we are is because of this theory of human beings that we have been inflicted with, that human beings are basically selfish and evil, And therefore the educational process is one of making people hate themselves for what they've done. You have to get them to see how terrible they are. And then the idea is they will be penitent and change the air of their ways. So the language that I was educated to speak growing up in Detroit, when I was driving, if somebody's driving in a way I don't like and I would like to educate them I open up the window and say something like, Idiot! Now, the theory is they're supposed to repent and they're supposed to say, I'm sorry, I see that I was wrong, I'll change the error of my ways. That's a great theory, but it never worked. So I thought that maybe it was this particular dialect that I learned in Detroit. So that's when I went and got this doctor's degree in psychology. And that taught me how to insult people in a much more educated way. So now when I'm driving and somebody doesn't drive in a way I would like, I roll down the window and say something like, sociopath. But it still doesn't work, you see. So, telling people what's wrong with them is a suicidal, tragic way that we have been educated to think for many centuries. So we don't want these judgments to mix in when we try to tell people what they've done that we don't like. We want to go directly to the behavior without mixing in this. I was working with some teachers having a conflict with their administrator. I said, what does he do that you don't like? One of them said, he has a big mouth. No, I said, I didn't ask you what size mouth he had. I asked you what he does, you see. Another one said, well, I know what he means. He talks too much. So no, too much is another diagnosis, you see. Another one said, well, he thinks he's the only one with any intelligence. No. Telling me what you think he thinks is an evaluation. What does he do? With my help, they finally got clear some behaviors that didn't mix in diagnoses. But along the way, they kept saying, boy, this is hard to do. Everything that comes into our head is a diagnosis or a judgment. I said, yes, this is not easy to get this cleared out of our consciousness. In fact, the Indian philosopher Jadu Krishnamurti says that the highest form of human intelligence is the ability to observe without evaluating. But with my help, they finally did come up with some behaviors. The the first on the list was that during their staff meetings, no matter what was on the agenda, he would relate it to one of his war experiences or childhood experiences, and as a result, the average meeting lasted longer than scheduled. Okay, now that was the answer to my question of what he did. That was a clear observation that didn't mix in any evaluation. I said to them, have any of you brought to his attention that specific behavior concerns you? And then one of them said, well, we can see that The way we communicated it was in the form of a judgment and then he gets defensive. and We really didn't just mention the specific behavior. So this is the first step in trying to tell people what's alive in us. To be able to call to their attention, concretely, specifically, what the person's doing that we like or don't like and not mix in any evaluation. So take a look at what you wrote down. See whether it had any evaluation mixed in. And if so, see if you can now say it, being very specific. Just what does the person do that you want to talk to them about? Now that we have uh, observation in mind of what this person does, if we're to use nonviolent communication, we want to be honest with them about it. But honesty of a different kind than telling people what's wrong with them. Honesty from the heart not honesty that implies wrongness. So we want to go inside and tell the person what's alive in us when this person does this. And this involves literacy of two kinds. First, it involves feeling literacy, and second, need literacy. To say clearly what's alive in us at any given moment, we have to be clear about what we are feeling and needing. So let's start with the feelings. Let's imagine we go to this person and we want to be honest with them. Then let's start by telling this person how we feel. So write down how you feel when the person does the behavior that you're thinking of. What emotions do you feel when they do that? One student in the university I was working with wanted to work on his roommate. And I said, okay, what is the behavior that your roommate does that you don't like? And he says, uh, he plays the radio late at night when I'm trying to sleep. Okay, so now let's tell him how you feel. How do you feel when he does that? He said, I feel it's wrong. Uh, I said, I'm not making clear then what I mean by feelings. It's wrong. Is what i would call a judgment of the other person i'm asking you how do you feel he said well i said i feel well yeah you use the verb feel but that doesn't mean that what follows it is necessarily a feeling what emotions do you feel how do you feel he thought for a while and he said well i think that when a person does something like that it's evidence of a personality disturbance to be so insensitive to other people I said, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Now, you're, you're still up there th- analyzing his wrongness. I'm asking you, go into your heart. Tell me how you feel when he does that. And he was sincerely trying to get in touch with his feelings, but he said, well, I don't have any feelings about it. I said, I hope that's not so. He said, why? I said, you'd be dead. We have feelings every moment. The problem is we haven't been educated in a way to be conscious of what's alive in us. Our consciousness has been more directed to make us look outward to what authority thinks we are. So just listen. Just listen to your body for a moment. How do you feel when he plays the radio that late at night? He really looked inside, and then he lit up, and he said, Okay, I got you now. I said, How do you feel? He says, Pissed off! Okay, I said, That'll do. There's other ways of saying it, but (laughs) okay. Okay. But I noticed uh, the woman sitting next to him, a faculty member's wife, she seemed a little perplexed. And and she looked at him and said, do you mean vexed? Uh, So there's different ways we might express our feelings depending on what culture we grow up in. But it is important to have a vocabulary of feelings that really do just describe what's alive in us. That in no way are interpretations of other people. So we don't want to use words like, I feel misunderstood, because that's not really a feeling. That's more what, how we are analyzing whether the other person has understood us or not. If we think somebody's misunderstood us, sometimes we can be angry, frustrated, it could be many different things. Likewise, we don't want to use words like, I feel manipulated, I feel criticized. They're not what we would call feelings in our training. Sadly, very few people have much of a feeling vocabulary. And I see the cost of that very often in my work. It's rather typical for me to have a conversation like this. A woman in a workshop might come up to me and say, you know, Marshall, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I have a very wonderful husband, and I'm sure you can guess what the next word is, but I never know how he's feeling. I hear this a lot from people. I hear from people that they've lived with their parents for years and never really know what their parents are feeling. How sad to live with people and not have this access to what's alive in them. So take a look at what you wrote. Is it really an expression of what's alive in you, your feelings? Make sure that it's not a diagnosis of others, thoughts. Go into your heart. How do you feel? when the other person does what they do. And now the third component of expressing what's alive in us, needs. Feelings can be used in a destructive way if we try to imply that other people's behavior is the cause of our feelings. The cause of our feelings is our needs, not other people's behavior. What I ask you to write down that the other person did, that's a stimulus for our feelings. It's not the cause of our feelings. I'm sure most of us knew this at one time. When I was six years old in my neighborhood, we used to say this when somebody would call us a name. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me. We were aware then that it's not what other people do that can hurt you, it's how you take it. But we were educated in guilt-inducing ways by authorities, teachers, parents, who wanted to use guilt to mobilize us to do what they wanted. So they would express feelings this way. It hurts me when you don't clean up your room. You make me angry when you hit your brother. So we've been educated by people who tried to make us feel responsible for their feelings so we will feel guilty. So feelings are important, but we don't want to use them in that way. We don't want to use them in a guilt-inducing manner. So it's very important that when we do express our feelings, we follow our feelings with a statement that makes it clear that the cause of our feelings is our needs. So let's see if we are using needs in the same way. So here's what I would like you to write down in relationship to what the other person has done and how you feel about it. Now, identify what needs are creating your feelings. And write it this way. I feel as I do because I am needing. And now, put to words that need of yours that isn't getting met by the other person's behavior. Now just as it's difficult for many people to develop a literacy of feelings, it's also very difficult for them to develop a literacy of needs. Many people in fact have associations with needs as something very negative. They associate needs with being needy, dependent, selfish. And again, I think that comes from our history of wanting to be educating people to fit well into domination structures so that they are obedient and submissive to authority. See, people do not make good slaves when they're in touch with their needs. I went to schools for 21 years. I can't recall ever being asked what my needs were. See, my education didn't focus on helping me be more alive, more in touch with myself and others. It was oriented toward rewarding me for getting right answers as defined by authorities. So, now let's look at the words that you are using to describe your needs. The main thing we have to look at is to make sure we don't get needs mixed up with what we're going to talk about next. Next, we're going to talk about requests, what we would like people to do to make life more wonderful for us. The difference between these two is that requests contain reference to specific actions we would like specific people to take. Needs do not contain any reference to specific people taking specific actions. Needs are universal. All human beings have the same needs. So in a workshop that I was doing recently, I asked this woman who was upset with her daughter, the way the daughter was not cleaning up the room, I said, what needs do you have in this situation that aren't getting met? She said, well, it's obvious I need her to clean up the room. No, I said, that's going to come next. That's a request. I'm asking, what needs do you have? And she couldn't come up with it. She didn't know how to look inside and see what her needs were. Again, she had a language for diagnosing what was wrong with the daughter, that the daughter was lazy. She could tell what she wanted the daughter to do, but she didn't know how to identify her needs. And this is unfortunate because it's when people see our needs that it stimulates people's enjoyment giving. Because we all can identify with needs. We all have the same needs. So when we can connect at the need level, conflicts would seem unsolvable. It's amazing how they start to become solvable when we see each other's humanness at the need level. I do a lot of work with people in conflict, husbands and wives, parents and children, tribes of people. Many of these people think they have conflicts which can't be resolved. And it's been amazing to me over the years that I've been doing conflict resolution and mediation work, what happens when you can get people over their diagnoses of each other, getting connected at the need level to what's going on in each other, how conflicts, which seem impossible to resolve, seems like they almost solve themselves when the people can get to this level. So now we have answered the three pieces of information that are necessary to say what's alive in us what we're observing, what we're feeling, and the needs of ours that are connected to our feelings. Now let's turn to the other basic question. What can be done to make life more wonderful? This takes the form of a clear request. We need to now request of the other person what we would like them to do to make life more wonderful for us. We've told them the pain we feel in relationship to what their behavior is, what needs of ours aren't getting met. Now we're going to say what we would like them to do to make life more wonderful for us. So imagine that you've said the first things to the person. You've told them what they've done, how you feel, what needs of yours aren't getting met. Now write down what you would say to make a request. Put it this way. I would like you to and then fill in the blank. What would you like this person to do to make life more wonderful for you? Now let's take a look at what you wrote down. Nonviolent communication suggests that we make our request using positive action language. So let me explain what I mean by each of those positive in the sense of what do you want the other person to do in contrast to what you don't want or what you want them to stop doing we get to a different place with people when we are clear about what we want rather than just telling them what we don't want a good example of that was a teacher recently in a workshop she said oh Marshall you've just helped me understand what happened to me yesterday I said what was that She said, there was this boy tapping on his book while I was talking to the class. And I said, would you please stop tapping on your book? So he started to tap on his desk. You see, telling people what we don't want is far different than what we do want. When we try to get somebody to stop something, it makes punishment look like an effective strategy. But if we ask ourselves two questions, we would never use punishment again. We would never use it with children. We would create a judicial system, a correctional system that does not punish criminals for what they've done. And we wouldn't try to punish other nations for what they're doing to us. Punishment is a losing game. We would see that if we asked these two questions. Question number one, what do we want the other person to do? See, not what we don't want. What do we want them to do? Now if we ask only that question, it can still make punishment seem like it works sometimes, because we can probably recall times when we've used punishment and we were successful at getting somebody to do what we wanted them to do. But if we add a second question, we'll see punishment never works. And what is the second question? What do we want the other person's reasons to be for doing what we want them to do? Now, as I said earlier, the purpose of nonviolent communication is to create connections so people do for one another out of compassion, not out of fear of punishment, not out of hope for rewards, but because of the natural joy we feel of contributing to one another's well-being. So when we make our request, we want to do them in the positive, what we do want. So in the example I gave you earlier with the mother and her daughter who said she wanted her daughter to clean up the room, and I said, well, that wasn't a need, nor was it a clear request. So I said to the mother, let's first get the needs clear, and then we'll see how to make that request clearer. So I said to the mother, what need of yours is not met when your daughter has the room in the state that it is? And the mother said, well, I think that if a family member is going to be a family member, they all have to contribute. I said, excuse me, hold it, hold it. Saying what you think is a distorted expression of a need. If you want your daughter to see the beauty in your request, she needs to see how life will be made more wonderful if she does what you're asking. So what is your need? What do you need that isn't being met? The mother said, I don't know. And I wasn't surprised because many women that I work with have been educated from childhood on to believe that loving women have no needs. They sacrifice their needs for their family. Men have been taught courageous men have no needs. They're willing to even sacrifice their life for the king, for the government, for whomever. So we don't develop much of a vocabulary of needs so finally with my help the mother did get clear what her needs were and she had more than one need that was involved first of all the mother had a need for order and beauty okay she could have gotten that need met by herself but mother also had a need for some support some help in creating the kind of order and beauty she would like so the mother then became conscious that two needs of hers were involved in this her need for order beauty and need for support in getting her needs met. I said, "Okay, then, now let's get to your request. And let's express it in positive action language. Say to your daughter what you do want. She said, well, I told you I want her to clean up the room. No, you see, now we have to use action language. Clean is too vague. We have to use a concrete action to make our requests. So what the mother finally came up with was that she would like the daughter to make the bed, to put clothes that were ready for the wash in the wash, not leave them on the floor, take dishes back into the kitchen that she had brought into her room. That would be a clear request. Now, once we have made this clear request, we need to be clear that it is not a demand. Earlier, we talked about criticism, anything that implies wrongness as a kind of communication that's not going to get our needs met. A second form of communication that's very destructive in human relationships are demands. We want to make clear, assertive requests, but we want other people to know that these are requests and not demands. Now, what's the difference? First, you can't tell the difference by how nicely it is asked. So if we do uh, say to uh, someone living with us, I would like you to hang up your clothes when you're finished with them. Now, is that a request or a demand? We don't know yet. We don't know. You can never tell whether something is a request or a demand by how nicely it is asked or how clear it is. What determines the difference between a request and a demand is how we treat people when they don't respond to our request. That's what tells people whether we make requests or demands. Now, what happens when people hear demands? Well, it's pretty obvious with some people when they've heard your request as a demand. One time I asked my youngest son, would you please hang your coat up in the closet? And he said, who was your slave before I was born? Okay, well, that's easy to be around such a person. Then if they hear your request as a demand, you know it right away. But other people, when they hear a request as a demand, they respond quite differently. They'll say something like, okay, but they don't do it. (laughs) Or the worst case is when the person hears the demand and they say, okay, and they do it. But they did it because they heard a demand. They were afraid of what would happen to them if they didn't. Anytime somebody does what we ask, out of guilt, shame, duty, obligation, fear of punishment, anything that people do for us out of that energy, we're going to pay for it. See, we want people to do for us only when they're connected to a kind of a divine energy that exists in all of us. And this divine energy is manifest to me by this joy we feel in giving to one another. We're not doing it to avoid punishment, guilt, and all of those things. Now some people cannot believe that you can have order in the house, and the government, unless you do force people to do things, make demands. For example, one mother I was working with, she said, but Marshall, uh, that's all very well and good, you see, uh, uh, to hope that uh, people are going to respond out of divine energy. But what about a child? I mean, a child has to first learn what they have to do, what they should do. This mother was using two of the words or concepts that I think are the most destructive. Have to, should, should. So she didn't trust that there's divine energy in children as well as in adults, so that they can do things not because they're going to be punished if they don't, but because they see the joy that comes from contributing to other people's well-being. So I said to the mother, I hope today I can show you other ways of presenting things to your children, so that it's more a request. They see your needs. They don't do it because they think they have to. They see the choice and they respond out of this divine energy within themselves. She says, I do all kinds of things every day that I hate to do, but there just are some things you have to do. I said, could you give me an example? She said, okay. Here's one. When I leave here this evening, I have to go home and cook. I hate to cook. I hate it with a passion. But it's just one of those things you have to do. I've done it every day for 20 years. I hate it, but you have to do certain things. See, she wasn't doing that out of divine energy. She was doing that out of this other kind of consciousness. So I said to her, well, I'm hoping I can show you today a way of thinking and communicating that will help you get back in touch with your divine energy and make sure that you only come out of that and that you can then present things to others so that they can come out of that energy. She was a rapid student. She went home that very night, announced to her family that she no longer wanted to cook i got some feedback from her family about three weeks later who shows up at a training but her older two sons they came up before the training and uh said to me uh we want to tell you how much change in our family has occurred since our mother came to your workshop oh yeah you know i've been very curious you know she told me that all the changes she's been making in her life since the I showed her how to come out of a certain energy whenever she does things and not to do things because she thought she had to. And I'm always wondering how that affects other family members. So I'm glad you guys showed up tonight. For example, what was it like that first night when she came home and said she no longer wanted to cook? The oldest son said to me, Marshall, I said to myself, thank God. I said, help me understand how you came to that. He said, I said to myself, now maybe she won't complain after every meal. So when we do things, it doesn't come out of this divine energy in each of us, this divine energy that makes compassionate giving natural. When we come out of this culturally learned patterns of doing things because we should, have to, must, to get rewards, out of guilt, out of shame, duty, obligation, everybody pays for it, everybody. So, nonviolent communication wants us to be clear. Don't respond unless it's coming out of this divine energy. And you'll know it is when you are willing to do it. Even if it's hard work, it will be joyful if our only motive is to make life more wonderful. Now, here's what happens if people hear demands. See, while I was first learning nonviolent communication, first getting all of this clear to myself, I had already started being a parent, but with the old school thoughts. So I had to clean up a mess for a while because even now when I was trying to be sure that when I made requests, they were requests, it was still easy for them to hear as a demand. As I told you, my youngest son saying, who was your slave? So Now that same son, twice a week, In the days before I was using nonviolent communication, we had the garbage war at our house. Now, what was the garbage war? You see, this was a task I had given him. I said, I want you to take the job over of taking out the garbage. Now, this was a demand, you see, because in my head, I had the thought that children should do tasks. So I wasn't telling him what need of mine would be met. I was telling him what he had to do. Putting it very nicely, this is your job, I would like you to take out the garbage. But because he was hearing it as a demand, we had the garbage war twice a week. And how did the garbage war start? Simply by my mentioning his name. Brat! Now how does he accelerate the war? He's in the next room, he pretends like he didn't hear me. So now I further the war even more. I scream now so loudly he can't pretend he didn't hear me. What do you want? The garbage isn't out. You're very perceptive, Dad. Get it out. I'll do it later. You said that last time and didn't. Doesn't mean I won't do it this time. Can you imagine so much energy going into just getting the garbage out twice a week? All because I was making a demand without realizing it. I didn't know the difference between a request and a demand at that time. So now as I was starting to learn nonviolent communication, I sat with him one night and listened to why the garbage wasn't going up. And he made it so clear that it was because he was hearing a demand. So I sat down afterwards and wrote this song. If I clearly understand you intend no demand, I'll usually respond. When you call But if you come across Like a high and mighty boss You'll feel like you ran into a wall And when you remind me so piously About all of those things you've done for me You'd better get ready Here comes another bout Then you can shout You can spit and grown throw a fit I still won't take the garbage out Now even if you should change your style it's going to take me a little while before I can forgive and forget Because it seemed to me that you didn't see me as human too until all your standards were met. It certainly helped me to get clear the difference between request and demands. For example, this was the same child that when it snowed, he would run down to the street corner where a woman with a severe handicap couldn't walk, but she could drive her car. But when her driveway was filled with snow, she had no mobility. So he would go down there And shovel her walk. It would take him well over an hour to clear her driveway. He never told her who did it. Never asked for money. Now at our house, we had a tiny little walkway to shovel. I couldn't get it done. And I was wondering, how come he'll do all of this for the neighbor? Well, because for the neighbor, it could come out of this divine energy that makes joyful, this giving to others. But I was putting it to him in a domination style. I'm the Father, and I know what you have to do. So now we've looked at how we express what's alive in us and what would make life more wonderful. We see how it requires observations, feelings, needs, clear requests. But those are the mechanics. It's always important to realize that these mechanics only have power when they're in the service of the spiritual purpose of the process, which is to create a connection so that people can respond out of divine energy, the joy of compassion, the joy of giving. If we do not have that intentionality, we've missed the whole thing. For example, one mother uh, came back a second day of a workshop and she said, I went home and tried it last night, Marshall, and it didn't work. I said, well, let's learn from the experience. What did you do? And she told me how she expressed herself to one of her children who hadn't done something she wanted. And she used the mechanics perfectly. She made a very clear observation, expressed her feelings, needs, requests. But she said he didn't do it. And I said, "Uh, so what do you mean it didn't work? Well, she said he didn't do it. Oh, so you're defining works that somebody does what you want them to do. Yes. Oh, well, then you see that it's not nonviolent communication. Even if you use the mechanics, that's not the idea. Remember yesterday I said the purpose is to create a quality of connection that allows us to give to one another out of the joy of compassionate giving. It's not just to get what you want. Oh, she said, so I'm just supposed to do all the work around the house myself. See, she makes the mistake that many people do to think that if we don't get people to do what we want, the only other option is to give up and then be permissive, to have anarchy. And I showed her that if we connect in the way I'm talking about, everybody's needs can get met. But if the other person thinks we have single-mindedness of purpose to get our request adhered to, it changes the game. Then it makes our request into demands. So, we've seen now how to be honest in nonviolent communication, sharing those four things from this consciousness of creating that special connection that enables compassionate giving to take place. I was working with some psychiatrists and psychologists, showing them how to use this kind of honesty in their relationships with patients. And I was suggesting that it's important to get rid of this old language of diagnosis, that I think that we can create healing connections with people far better than, instead of sitting there and intellectually analyzing them, that we reveal ourselves. And we reveal ourselves from our heart. We say clearly what is alive in us, what we would like people to do differently. Now, I wasn't surprised that this is rather shocking. To such people they were educated like i was to mentally diagnose people and i was taught that to think of even expressing myself was about the worst thing you could do so i wasn't surprised when i got a free diagnosis from one of the psychiatrists she said dr rosenberg don't you see that when you suggest that we also reveal ourselves in this way openly reveal our feelings needs requests Don't you see what you're doing? You're allowing your narcissism to interfere with your ability as a therapist. Another psychiatrist arose in my defense and said to her, Don't you see what you're doing? You're projecting your narcissism onto this man. So I went home and wrote this song, which I call the Sink or Shrink Blues. Well, I went to a shrink in a clinic near me. He said I was a case of total pathology. I said, shrink, I knew that before I came in. I need someone to care, not this analyzing. He asked me if I had any strange habits. Oh, I said a few. I was always willing to learn some more. So he gave me some pills, he said, take them each day. I said pills wouldn't take my blues away. I said, shrink, my blues come from people like you, who know what I am, but not what I've been through. See, folks, he was one of those old-fashioned doctors. (laughs) He still thought you needed a prescription to get drugs. Well that shrink saw what he was trained to see, he just never got around to seeing me. So I left that shrink, I wasn't impressed, now there's two who flew the cuckoo's nest. Let's go back to your situation now where I was asking you to be honest with this other person, but honesty defined in nonviolent communication terms. That's half the process, learning how to express ourselves in this way. The other half of the process is how we respond to other people's messages and to prepare us to see how nonviolent communication suggests responding to other people. Let's go back to your situation and use your imagination. Imagine that now you try out what we've learned so far. You decide to go to this person and be honest with them in the way I'm defining. So you tell the other person the four things I've asked you to write down. You tell them what they've done that you don't like, how you feel, what needs of yours aren't met, and what your request is. Now predict how they might respond. And write that down. Now let me tell you what many people are afraid would happen if they open up and reveal themselves. To reveal honestly what's alive in them and what would make life more wonderful. Many people are afraid they're going to get a free diagnosis from the other person. The other person's going to tell them what's wrong with them for having these feelings, needs, and requests. They're afraid they'll hear things like, You're too sensitive. That's sick. This can happen, of course. We live in a world where people think that way. So if we are really open and honest, we might get back these diagnoses. So nonviolent communication prepares us for how to deal with any response that might come back. Other people are afraid of silence. They say, what if I open up and, and reveal myself and the other person is silent? Yeah, we got to prepare for that. Many people are so afraid of this tiny little two-letter word, no. They say, what if I open up and say what I want and I need, and the other person says, no. Okay, so look at what you wrote down. We want to prepare for anything that can come back at us. So what's the other half of nonviolent communication? The other half shows us how to make empathic connection with what's alive in the other person and what would make life more wonderful for the other person. So let me tell you what I mean by empathic connection. Empathy, of course, is a special kind of understanding. It's not an understanding of the head where we just mentally understand what another person says. It's something far deeper and more precious than that. Empathic connection is an understanding of the heart where we see the beauty in the other person, the divine energy in the other person, the life that's alive in them. We connect with it. We don't mentally understand it. We connect with it. It doesn't mean we have to feel the same feelings as the other person. That's sympathy when we feel sad maybe that another person is upset. No, it doesn't mean we have to have the same feelings. It means that we are with, with the other person. This quality of understanding requires one of the most precious gifts one human being can give to another, our presence in the moment. You see, if we're mentally trying to understand the other person, we're not present with them at this moment. We're sitting there analyzing them, but we're not with them. So empathic connection involves connecting with what is alive in the other person at this moment. So look again now at what you predicted, how the other person might respond. And let's say that you have told your boss that you are frustrated at his or her asking you to stay over for the third night in a row and do additional work. You're frustrated with that because you have other commitments and needs that you'd like to take care of, so you've been honest about your reasons for not wanting to do it, and you ended on a clear request. You're asking him, would you be willing to find someone else to help with this work this evening, boss? Okay. So you've been real honest and vulnerable, and now let's imagine that uh, the boss says to you, if you want to be unemployed, I'll do as you request. Okay. Okay. What choices do you have now? Let me show you what choices you have with every message coming at you from another person. Choice number one, you could take it personally as though what you said indicated there was something wrong with you. So if the boss responds to you that way, you could immediately think, oh, I am being selfish or I'm not a very good employee that to want not to do what the boss says. And so you could take personally what the boss says. We have been educated, when authorities tell us what's wrong with us, to think there's something wrong with us. What I'm going to show you now will suggest that you never, never, never hear what other people think about you. I predict you'll live longer, you'll enjoy life more, if you never hear what people think about you. Never take it personally. Second choice we have when somebody speaks to us like the boss spoke in this example I'm giving, we could judge the boss or the other person for what they said to us. So we could either think or say out loud, that's not fair, that's stupid, whatever. We could blame the other person for what they said. I wouldn't recommend that. So the recommendation I have is to learn to connect empathically with any message coming at us from other people. And nonviolent communication shows us a way of doing that. It shows us a way of seeing the beauty in the other person at any given moment, regardless of their behavior or their language. We'll see that it requires connecting with the other person's feelings and needs at this moment. See that's what's alive in them. And when we do, we're going to hear the other person singing a very beautiful song. I was working with some 12-year-olds in a school out in the state of Washington, showing them how to make empathic connections with people. And they wanted me to show them how I could deal with parents and teachers. They were afraid that if they opened up and revealed what was alive in them, what they would get back. One of the students said, for example, Marshall, yesterday I was honest with one of my teachers. I said I didn't understand, and I asked her, would you explain it again? And the teacher said, don't you listen? I've explained it twice already. Another young man said, I asked my dad yesterday for something. I tried to express my needs to him, and he said, you're the most selfish child in the family. So they were very eager to have me show them how to empathically connect with the people in their lives who use language like that, because they only knew to take it personally, to think there was something wrong with them. So I showed the students that if you learn how to connect empathically with other people, you will hear that they're always singing a beautiful song. And then I played this song for the students to show them that this is what you will hear behind every message coming at you from another human being if you connect to the divine energy in that person at that moment. See me beautiful Look for the best in me That's what I really am, and all I want to be. It may take some time, it may be hard to find, but see me beautiful. See me beautiful. Each and every day Could you take a chance Could you find a way To see me shining through In everything I do And see me beautiful I was working in a refugee camp in a country not very pleased with the United States. And when my interpreter announced that I was an American citizen, there were about 170 people assembled. One of them jumped up and screamed at me, murderer. Another one jumped up, child killer. Another one, assassin. I was glad I knew nonviolent communication that day. It enabled me to see the beauty behind that person's message, what was alive in him. And we do that in nonviolent communication by hearing feelings and needs behind any message. So I said to this gentleman, are you feeling angry because your need for support isn't getting met by my country? Now that required me to try to sense what he was feeling and needing. I could have been wrong. But even if we're wrong, if we are sincerely trying to connect with the divine energy in another human being, their feelings, their needs at that moment, that shows the other person that no matter how they communicate with us, we care about what's alive in them. And when persons trust that, we're well on our way to making a connection that everybody's needs can get met. But it didn't happen right away because this gentleman was in a lot of pain. And it happened that I guessed right, because when I said, are you angry because your need for support isn't being met by my country, he said, you're darn right. And then he added to that, we don't have sewage systems, we don't have housing, why are you sending your weapons? So I said, so sir, if I'm hearing you again, you're saying that it's very painful when you need things like sewage systems and you need things like housing and when weapons are sent instead, it's very painful. He said, you're darn right. Do you know what it's like to live under these conditions for 28 years? So, sir, you're saying that it's very painful and you need some understanding for the conditions that you're living under. An hour later, the gentleman invited me to a Ramadan dinner at his house. This is what happens when we can connect with the humanness in each other, the feelings and needs behind any message. This doesn't mean we always have to say it out loud. Sometimes it's pretty obvious what a person is feeling and needing. We don't have to say it. They'll feel it from our eyes whether we are really trying to disconnect with them. Notice this does not require that we agree with the other person. It doesn't mean we have to like what they're saying. It means that we give them this precious gift of our presence. To be present to, at this moment, what's alive in this person. And that we are interested in that, sincerely interested. Not as a psychological technique, but because we want to connect with the beauty in that person at this moment. Now, when we put this all together then, what it looks like is this. We may start a dialogue with the other person by telling them what's alive in us and what we would like them to do to make life more wonderful for us. And no matter how they respond, we try to connect with what's alive in them and what would make life more wonderful for them. And we keep this flow of communication going until we find strategies to meet everybody's needs. And we want to always be sure that whatever strategies people agree to, they're agreeing out of a desire to contribute to the well-being of one another and not out of the strategies that I've outlined that we want to avoid. Strategies of submitting to punishment, guilt, etc. Many people believe that there are some people you cannot do this with. They believe that some people are so damaged, so whatever, that no matter what communication you use. You're not going to arrive at this point. That has not been my experience. It's been my experience that with the time that it takes, and sometimes it does take some time, if I'm working with some prisoners in various prisons that I work in throughout the world, I'm not saying that this connection can happen right away. It may take quite a while for some people to really trust that I'm sincerely interested in what's alive in them. It's not easy to stay with that sometimes because my own cultural conditioning hasn't allowed me to be fluent earlier in my life at this. So in learning this, it can be a real challenge. I recall one time when I was first learning it, when my older son and I were having a conflict. And he was saying things. And my first reaction was not to connect with what was alive in him, what he was feeling and needing. I wanted to jump in and show him he was wrong. So I had to take a deep breath deep breath, see what was going on in me for a moment and see that I was losing connection with him and then bring my attention back to saying to him, so you're feeling and you're needing, try to connect with him. Then he said something else and again I got triggered and I had to slow down, take a deep breath to be able to keep coming back and seeing what was alive in him. And of course, this was taking me a longer time to talk than my usual conversation had been up until that point. And he had some friends waiting for him outside. And finally he said, Daddy, it's taken you so long to talk. I said, let me tell you what I can say quickly. Do it my way or I'll kick your ass. He said, take your time, Dad. Take your time. So nonviolent communication requires that we take our time take our time to come from our divine energy rather than our cultural programming. This concludes Session One. Our program continues with Session Two.